the market doesn't care, but listen, I'm the biggest shareholder in the company and I care. And it's where our interests are very much aligned with David Sanger, who's our biggest non-family shareholder, all the way through to my kids and my sister and my nephews and nieces and, you know, Uncle Tom Cobbley. The following is for information purposes only and should not be used as the basis of an investment decision. This is not investment advice. This episode is made possible by Progressive Equity Research, providing freely available, engaging investment research and opportunities to hear from a wide range of small and mid-cap UK listed companies. For today's episode, I'm joined by the private investor and host of the Desert Island Investor podcast, Mark Atkinson, for a conversation with the chairman and CEO of Town Centre Securities, Edward Ziff. Edward is the second generation custodian of a family business with a rich history largely centred on the city of Leeds. He talks candidly about the challenges of managing a small listed real estate company in which his family holds a controlling stake. He discusses the difficulties of attracting outside shareholders and how modern norms of PLC life often run counter to the cherished traditions of personal relationships often prevalent in family-owned companies. Edward is not the first-generation entrepreneur managing growth and trying to hold a tiger by the tail. First and foremost, he's trying to preserve capital and generate income for an increasingly diverse and dispersed group of family and friends, while also meeting the requirements of a modern listed company. Despite navigating the financial pitfalls of the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic, Town Centre Securities is left today looking like something of a stock market relic, trading at less than half its assessed net asset value, rather reflecting its small size and lack of institutional appeal. As Edward says, running a small listed family company is exciting and depressing in equal measure. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Edward Ziff. Hi, Edward, and thanks for joining us today. I'd love to start by understanding more about you, your family, and how you came to be running this, what I've heard you describe as a quoted family business called Town Centre Securities. You clearly come from an entrepreneurial family, which from what I can see has been involved in different aspects of business like discount retailing, footwear, and of course, property. Were you always destined to end up running the family business? I don't know. I think I was always destined to be in a family business and obviously a Ziff family business. From an early age, my father always included all of us in his sort of commercial life. And he was very open with us and shared a lot of what happened at work with us. You know, I often described, first of all, Stylo and Town Centre as my father's other children. Saturdays were quite you know, I have some quite vivid memories. It would have always started with my mother insisting that we went to the synagogue. That was followed by lunch with my mother's mother, my granny. At that point, my father would have come back from being at the office or having gone round some of his shops on a Saturday morning. He'd have had a quick lunch and then we'd have been off to see Leeds United, who I'm thrilled to say that I did at least experience a long number of years when they were the leading club in the country. And then Saturday evening, 
when we got home and there was always a big tea, when we got home, the phone would ring continually and it would be the area managers of Stylo or the Barrett shops ringing through with their takings. And that then determined the mood for Saturday night and Sunday. When I went away to boarding school, I think my mother probably would have been convinced not to send me if she'd have been given half a chance. But my father was insistent on it. The quid pro quo was that he did come and visit me very regularly because it gave an opportunity to get out around his shops. And visiting me at Clifton would have started with him taking me out for dinner on a Friday evening after school and have to go back and stay. And Saturday morning, we'd have had synagogue at school. And then Saturday afternoon, you were allowed out and he would have taken me out. And I went to places like Bath and Swindon, Cardiff and other such places. I remember going as far as Taunton, surprise, surprise, to visit Stylo Shops. So I had an early knowledge of the high street, which actually when I joined town centre helped me enormously. You know, I could look on a plan and I knew which was best pitch. And it wasn't just by looking where Marks and Spencer's was. At about the time, Stylo ventured into the discount retail business. We bought a chain of discount shops called Pennywise, which was an amazing business. And I remember being moved and I was running or helping to run the Pennywise branch in Worksop. And you saw right at the sharp end, a bit one up from a market stall, but you got to see close up how prices were important to people. I remember, I think it was my one of my uncle's mottos. My uncle Paul used to say to me that you used to either have to be better, cheaper or different than your competition. And cheap is always hard, different is a risk, and better is usually because you work harder. You've obviously been involved in town centre securities for many years and the wider family business. You've seen some enormous changes in the retail environment, in the commercial world. Can you just set the scene of how you think about the picture today in the perspective. Yeah, I mean, being a listed company, being a small listed company is exciting and depressing in equal measures. And some of the ways that things have changed in recent years, I don't think necessarily is for the better. I'll throw at you as just one example where you have to rotate not only the audit partner of the firm that audits you regularly, but after a certain period of time, you're then expected to audit the actual audit practice that is doing the job for you. And to lose that connection is not only sad, but I think isn't necessarily an advantage. You know, if if people are going to cheat by putting regulation in the way, all that's going to do is change how and where people cheat. Auditors are not allowed to entertain their clients anymore. Well, if people genuinely think I'm for sale for a round of golf with the audit partner at PwC, It's a poor bloody do on both sides. It's a poor bloody do that they think I'm for sale. And it's a poor bloody do if they think that I think they're for sale. So that whole regime, I think we've lost a lot of the personal touch. And then there's, from a property perspective, we're expected to value our assets, not only every year now, but but twice a year. I know some funds are valued monthly. And to try and plot your way through as in a long-term investment asset like real estate is, by valuing its assets up and down twice a year is not helpful. It doesn't really do anything. Just because the stock market, as it turns out, I'd go as far as to say, are looking for excuses why not to invest. There are, as we know, 
a lot of people who, like you were saying to me before, who know their way around the stock market, understand value, and are happy to put the time in to buy those shares and get to know the business. We've got a stake in a local metal bashing business called Brain here in Leeds. Brain's, I think it's probably into its fourth or fifth generation. And I think it's a fabulous business. They've still got a two-tier share structure, which both shares have quoted. And we've done extraordinarily well with our investment, but there's no market in the shares. So if we ever want to liquidate it, who knows, you know, one day maybe the next generation will cash in. And there have been some great people in the property world or near the property world. I'm sort of thinking there was a guy still alive, sadly quite frail now, Jack Petchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, who used to be really good at that stuff. There was Matthew Oakeshott, who was very good at that stuff. But these people were bright people who understood value, were prepared to be patient and nurture things along. And their investment aspirations and the way the businesses were run sat very, very close to each other in terms of pleasing each other. And we don't see much of that anymore. In this environment that we now live in, how do you engage new shareholders? How do you attract people like Mark and I to come and say, oh, that's an interesting opportunity. It's value laden because if I want a stake in your portfolio, I can buy it for 50p in the pound or there or thereabouts. So how do we attract them? The answer is with difficulty and not very often, if I'm being honest with you. I find nothing more depressing than going around potential investors who make themselves available to see companies like ours. And I'm sure it's because in their annual review from their bosses, they're expected to see at least half a dozen companies, let's say, each week, just in case they might be missing something. And there was going back a couple of years ago, it was pre-COVID, so that's at least three years now. I remember we were in front of one investment manager and, you know, he'd sort of been very pleasant with us. He'd asked us a few questions. He'd clearly done some homework before we went in to see him. And when I finished, I said, so what do you think then? You know, do you like the story? He said, yeah, I do actually. I said, will you buy any of our shares? He said, no, I don't think so. I said, forgive me. And I said, I think I know how many you've got. Will you sell any? He said, no, I don't think so. So I said, so, you know, it's very polite. It's nice to come in out of the cold. You serve nice tea and nice crockery. Your biscuits are better than most. It's a warm place to come when it's cold outside. I don't want to waste your time. So why am I coming? So he said, well, it helps to know a bit about the industry. So I said, well, you can buy the Estates Gazette every week. So he said, well, yeah, but it's, you know, better to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. And I said, well, that's nice of you to say He said, oh, I'll let you know. And I think from that day to this, I've not heard Pete from them. You know, I thought to myself, you know, another nail in the coffin. And we've got some really good long-term shareholders who are interested. I hear from them. I get emails when we pull out announcements. I get suggestions when either companies bigger or similar to ourselves maybe make announcements. Have you thought about doing this? And they're great. So we've got a shareholder. Unfortunately, the father passed away a year or so ago. They go in our annual report as New Fortress. The family are called Sanger, and old man Sanger was a delightful man, an absolutely delightful man. He's got now 9% of the company. He liked what we did, and it sort of replicated his style. Edward, I'd like to ask a very basic question. Easy one first up this. 
the business was formed, I think, around 1960. Does town centre security still aptly describe what it does? You know, its assets are around town city centres. It's a good question. The answer is yes, I think it does. I don't think I'd ever want to change our name, but I mean, we were retail. We were out-and-out retail. And getting back to one of your earlier questions about the sort of family, my father joined his father's business, Stylo Barrett Shoes. Well, Stylo Shoes, and then they merged with a chain called Barrett. And it was very much based on owning the freehold of shops that they traded from, which, as it's turned out, is probably a bit of a broken model now. But, hey, of its day, it was how things were done. And what my father saw was the opportunity then to make a development profit. So he developed a parade of five shops, and Styler would have taken one, and he'll have let the other four. And he soon realized he was going to tie up all of Styler's capital in real estate rather than in footwear. And it would constrain it. So he, he created Town Center to do those developments and retain the freehold investments and live off their income. And quite interesting, at its peak, we probably only ever had Stylo as a tenant in maybe two handful, a dozen places at the very most. By the time I joined Town Centre in the early 1980s, Town Centre was a broadly based, securely financed business that was secure, that's the securities bit, and predominantly based about 85% in retail. I was sort of brought up, as I told you before, looking around high streets and I loved going to find those opportunities where I could find a local private owner. I could buy the freehold. We could knock it around a bit and relet it to, I don't know, Dixon's in its day or British Shoe Corporation. I'd always offer it to Stylo first, but they always wanted a special deal. And we found more often than not, we could get more rent from other people than Stylo were prepared to pay, which was just as well as it turned out. But the business then expanded. And, and as I say, it was floated quite quickly but always the town center piece was a reference to where we bought the property and the securities piece was that we were always securely financed and an early lesson i remember my father introducing me to a guy called sam chippendale i don't know if that name means anything to you but sam chippendale was the dale of arndale and sam chippendale was probably the best property developer this country has known since the war. And that includes some of the pretty talented ones that have been around in recent years, the sort of Stuart Lipton-style developers. But he was clueless in terms of finance. And he ultimately sold the business. He was in business with a guy called Arnold Hagenbach, and that was the Arn of Arndale. Arnold Hagenbach had a chain of sandwich shots, probably greasy spoons, you'd probably call them today. At the time of selling, Arnold Hagenbach sold and, and went off into the sunset. Sam Chippendale carried on, and Sam Chippendale lost all his money in the 1973-4 banking crisis and never recovered. And yet he was one of the finest developers the country ever knew. And you'll have seen Arndale centers up and down the country. So the financing bit of property, my old man always said to me, you know, be sure whatever you do, you've got it properly financed because... You can do the greatest property deal and then you'll hemorrhage money because you haven't got the finance sorted and you either find yourself short of money and you're put under pressure. So, yeah, it does answer the questions still. Today, we're down to about 25% retail, and that is predominantly the retail held within Merrion Centre here in the centre of Leeds. Half of our assets probably are of either 
commercial or car parks, and the balance is the development portfolio or residential. And residential has become quite a big part of what we've been doing in recent times. A lot of the features that retail property used to have now is embodied in residential. And in the early days when residential legislation was such that made it quite difficult for investors to invest in, nowadays life is much more simple and straightforward. And Manchester, I would have loved to have bought more. I mean, we own a lot of property in Manchester, but more of a development variety than investment property. And yes, I wish we'd have bought more over the years. I mean, we've always had this sort of mantra that we'll go wherever value for money takes us. I guess the top and bottom of it, we've done okay with what we've had. We had a lot of property in Manchester and Rochdale because we bought a thing called the Rochdale Canal Company, which was a small listed company that my father spotted. He started investing in it and ended up buying the whole business eventually. That was half of our Piccadilly Basin site in Manchester. And their original canal basin in Rochdale, we created a retail park, which more recently we sold. But, you know, it's where we see value for money. So London has always been somewhere that has attracted me to want to invest more. And it's always seemed a bit too expensive. The shame is we didn't bite the bullet sooner because the southeast is the engine room of the UK economy, whichever way you like it, good or bad. And you won't find someone who is an advocate of the north and particularly this part of the north than me. But, you know, sadly, the economy is driven from London. and. Unfortunately, we don't own enough property down there, and and it's certainly an intention to buy more, but we don't ever want to overpay for what we buy. Well, you've got a broad portfolio, you know, from the report, you know, office space is 30%, retail 23%, leisure 8%, residential 6%, a hotel even at 3%, uh, car parking is 16%, and development 14%. Are you confident that you've got the right balance with diversification and you're not encroaching on diversification with you know i was interested in that that models the answer is i don't think we've owned enough of the right properties since the global financial crisis tcs's financial performance share price performance has not been as good as it should have been and i think that what we did was the business became a reit when the reit regime came in in the early 2000s and That certainly promoted the paying of dividends because 90% of your REITable income needs to be distributed in order to retain REIT status. So we became quite driven by income. And what that meant was we were sort of driving yield and income in our properties literally every day. But we'd sort of lost touch with a bit, dare I say, with the capital values of things and where that whole industrial sector has gone absolutely mental over the last 10 years. You know, I remember being able to buy industrial at double-digit yields and low rents. And what's happened is that and retail swap places. And I think we had too much of the latter. And I won't say which one, but I had quite a frightening call early in COVID from a bank that we were doing business with who told me that they weren't going to renew our facilities. And I genuinely thought that we are going to have a real problem here because the bottom line is they're going to want their money back and we're not going to be able to pay. And, and if this whole COVID thing turns into a 
another credit crunch. Fortunately, we had two Waitrose supermarkets in Scotland, which we had on the market going into COVID because we were a bit worried about Waitrose's ability to compete in Scotland. So we decided to sell these two stores because everybody loves, or did at the time, love John Lewis's covenant and Waitrose had long leases. We managed to sell these two properties. We managed to clear the debt on the loan that we had with this bank. And I thought this is actually quite good. And what we need to do is continue de-gearing the business because at that time we had probably 400 million of property, maybe a bit less, 350 million pounds worth of property and 175, 180 million pounds of debt. And in the quoted sector, that's 100% geared. And if there was going to be a fall off in values, we were really worried that it would put pressure on our loan to value covenants. So we cleared out that bank. We decided then that there were a number of other assets, particularly retail ones, which we recognized they were not performing necessarily as well as we thought they were. And the income that we were collecting from them maybe wasn't quite as good as we thought it was. So we carried on that process and went from sort of 180, 190 million pounds of debt at the start of COVID, of which about 120 million was our debenture. To today, I think our debt sits at 85 million. And we've cleared half our debt, a bit more. And the business feels in better shape than it's felt for years. Has that de-gearing phase got further to go? No. I mean, I've always felt you should never be the first owner of a new office block. So if we're going to do an office development, the likelihood is we will sell it when it's completed because people will pay more for a new office building than they should do. So I always think you should either be the developer or the second owner or third owner of an office building, not the first one. So that when you do buy it, there's plenty of things to do. Either you buy the site to develop the building or you're buying a building that needs reconfiguring and either you're going to extend it, you're going to maybe turn it into residential. We need to have a portfolio of property where there's opportunity to grow value or income or both. Does the recent path of interest rates make development much more difficult? Well, it won't make it any easier, obviously, but I think inflation is a much bigger problem for the new build development sector rather than necessarily interest rates are. So of our 85 million or so of debt that is our current position, all but about 2 million pounds is the residue of a 5.375% debenture that's got about nine years left unexpired. So for us, it was quite a high coupon if you compare it with interest rates two years ago. Now we're quids in. But above all, we've got security and the knowledge that so long as we keep our part of the bargain in maintaining the covenants that we've given, that's secure finance that is going nowhere and is very safe and secure. And it won't change. So that's quite a joyful position to be in, that all these interest rate rises have barely affected us at all. Over the last three years, we have bought in about 25, 30 million of the debenture for cancellation, purely and simply because for its size and our size now, it was too big. So we've still got eight and a half years left on it. You've also bought in your own equity, I think, as well. Yeah, and, and again, the buying the debenture back is a bit of a different dynamic than buying the equity. The equity is, a dare I say, a no-brainer because with an asset value more than double the current share price. It's ridiculous. 
if you took an average of what the rest of the sector has done and applied it to our portfolio, you probably won't be a million miles away from our performance. In fact, our performance is probably a bit better than that. So it must be down to your relative size and relative level of liquidity. Yeah. that no one's interested. One yeah. of our non-executives, rather unfairly, I think, but I get the point, describes us as that old black and white television set where the white dot eventually disappears. That's harsh. It is harsh, but it's probably true. Yeah. Uh, so only those of us of a certain age that can remember watching the white dot disappear in the middle yeah. of the television. So, yes. <laughs> well, I think both of you will remember that. Yes, for sure. That goes back to the depressing bit that no matter what we do, no one's interested. So um, I don't think it's because we're doing it wrong. I think it's because we're not the right size. I mean, you've previously made disposals. You disposed of the Q Park business. Is that an option? So this year we had a result. So my son, Benjamin, who now runs our car park business, yes. is a very, very IT aware. So he'd come up with the notion of, you'll have heard of these apps that there are to buy car park spaces near your local railway station when you're commuting and, and you yeah. rent someone's yeah. drive. So he had developed an app for us on which he'd spent a fair amount of money. I think at the time, you know, not seven figures, but less than half a million, but more than 100,000. And he couldn't crack this for love nor money, and he'd spent quite a lot of time effort. Anyhow, he bumped into two guys who had just started a business doing exactly that thing with car park spaces. And they were looking for some finance, and we were looking for a bit of expertise that we were having a lot of trouble finding. We ended up buying a half share of their business. We gave them a loan of a couple of million quid, and we put in about £700,000 of equity. So it was quite a ballsy investment. And we decided to throw our lot in with them as far as this app was concerned. That was probably about seven years ago. And last year, the business was bought by a French venture capital business for 125 million quid. Sounds good. Our stake was down from 50% to about 23%. So... We didn't get 62 million quid. We got about 25 million, 30 million, something in that space. And we got the loan repaid. So, yeah, we have had, you know, one or two good results along the way. More recently, we got planning consent for a couple of our sites, one in Leeds, one in Manchester for big, tall residential towers. And whilst we are happy to build out our developments, these tall towers of sort of 20, 30, 40 stories are not things that we have any expertise in. It's a hugely technical job, difficult job, to deliver those projects on time to budget. So we had a couple of windfalls on those because we sold them with the benefit of planning consent on the basis of the consents being you know, high-volume residential. Well, turning to what was your core business retail, we mentioned that number previously. It's at 23 and that's come down aggressively over the last few years. It was 60% six years ago. It used to be 85. I think there was a time yeah. that it was actually more than 90. Right. Well, presumably this reflects your views on the headwinds that for this sector, you know, not least the rise in e-commerce. Yeah, definitely. The problem I've got is I can't resist looking at retail and I look at some of the opportunities that are about and I think they're great. I mean, I used to specialise buying retail in small towns and only yesterday, 
I was offered a property by Alder King, who were a Bristol-based estate agency, of the Boots and the WH Smith in St. Austell, down in the southwest, £800,000. And it was a property that we owned about 15 years ago, maybe a bit more. And we sold it for over three million quid. And it's the same property. It's the same tenants. Yeah, it's 15 years older. And it looks a bit scruffy, but it looks very down at heel. And the reality is the Boots lease and the WH Smith lease, they now will only take five-year leases. And the opportunity to gear up, or that's not the right word, but enjoy the multiple that a long lease offers you isn't there anymore. So, you know, I look at it and I think, wow, that's a great, I think we could buy it off of something like 11 or 12% yield. You know, that's twice the cost of money. So 800,000 pounds means that it's probably throwing off somewhere in the region of 90,000 a year. 800,000 pounds would cost you 60,000 a year to borrow in interest rates. So there's an opportunity there to make 50% of your income as profit. Or no, a third, depending on which way you look at it. A third of your income is profit. You know, 30,000 a year out of 90,000 of rent. And I sort of think, wow, that's five years, four years unexpired. I think the lease has just been renewed. And then you think to yourself, you've got to do so many of them. And I'm back to where I was four years ago, chasing income again. You know, you've been very candid. And when I read the annual report, the tenor of that is very candid as well. Now, you mentioned about you're looking to dispose of underperforming retail and leisure assets. You know, we've just touched on that. Does that put you at a disadvantage when you're negotiating with potential buyers that you think this is a, an underperforming business? What's it the does, It does put you at a disadvantage when you've got £200 million of debt as near as damn it. But when you've got £80 million of debt, and just using the example of the numbers that I used for St. Hostel just this week, you know, if you're earning 30000 a year off an £800,000 property, how much damage is it going to do you this month or next? The answer is it's not going to do very much damage at all. 30000 you're earning £500 a week surplus cash flow. Well, that'll pay some costs in the business very nicely, thank you. So whilst I want to sell stuff, if it's on the market, the assumption is we want to sell it. Otherwise, you wouldn't put it on the market in the first place. But bottom line is, once you've put it on the market, You've got to hang out for what you think is the fair price. You're going to have to make it attractively priced for someone to want to buy it, but not so low that you're going to be skinned alive. When you don't have banks screaming at you, oh, we want our money back. And now, literally, we've got three mainstream banks who we rely on to do business. The bank that rang us three years ago, who told us that they didn't want to renew our facilities, Surprise, surprise, have subsequently told us they do. And that's because we're now a better financial bet than we were because we've hardly got any bank debt. So we're not under pressure anymore. And it's that pressure that keeps you awake at night and gives you that going back to school feeling in the pit of your stomach where you're frightened of making a mistake. Now we're in a strong financial position again. I'm not going to let someone steal something from me. Who are the buyers of these sort of the boots down in St. Hostel? Dare I stereotype here, but there are certain types of investors who have earned cash from their, maybe their takeaway business or whatever, and they're sitting on a pile of cash. You know, at the end of the day, they're still only getting three or 4% in the bank, free and clear after everything. And it gives them an opportunity for a bit of yield. And they're the people who are the risk takers. We're risk takers, but of a different sort. And what I don't want to do is spend my whole time 
re-letting properties that I'd done well letting five years ago and I'm then faced with letting at the same rent as it was five years ago or less. Charlie Munger said that the problem with buying value companies as opposed to high quality growth companies is that once you've bought a value company, you then have to remember when to sell it. And I'm not being pejorative here, but if you buy rubbish at a good price and it becomes an okay price, you have to sell it because you've got rubbish. If you manage to buy Google for a pound, you never have to worry about it ever again. No. That's it. Job done. Yeah. But, you know, listen, Berkshire Hathaway have got a bit of an advantage. They don't pay a dividend, do they? Or if they do, it's only very small. No, I don't think they do. They never paid a dividend. No, no. You're in a REIT structure and you're... Well, I'm in a REIT structure and I've got a a constant party of 55% and wider family and some friends probably takes it to about 65, 70. On the basis of what you said, that there are other sort of new friends that have come along on the way, they all like a dividend. Yeah. One thing I am still unhappy about is that our dividend peaked at sort of 12p or thereabouts, and we're now paying half that. But the reality is we were on a treadmill that was just wrong. Yes, we were spinning off more profit because we had these high-yielding properties in our portfolio, but it wasn't to be relied on. Unfortunately, we've managed to match the reduction in dividend by reducing our bank debt at the same time. So the risk profile is more appropriate. I decided, I was, I'd been chatting to my brother about selling some of the low growth property. And I picked one of my cousins to go and have a chat to, who I'm pleased to say, I think all the cousins who are on our share register are people who I would regard as not only people I'd happily talk to, but spend time with as well. And I went to see this cousin of mine who's getting on. I mean, he's probably nearer 80 than 70. And I said, This is the question that I've got for you. You love getting 12p a share dividend or 11.75, whatever it was. I don't know how long I can continue doing this for, Alan. Well, that one's if was the cousin that I picked. And he said, well, don't cut the dividend. I said, well, you do know we're over 100% geared. So he said, well, I don't want to sell my shares. He said, and so the next best thing is that I get a good dividend. And I said, what happens if interest rates rise, and that takes away all the dividend. Not only you've not got a dividend, but you've got a company that's at risk. And he said, do you think that's a genuine possibility? I said, it's a genuine risk, and we just need to manage the process so that everybody can know that we've got a sustainable business model because we've been running very hard, but we've been enjoying low rates of interest, which make us look better at it than we are. He said, well, if you feel that strongly about it, then you know you must do what's best for the company. And I said, well, will you be shocked then if the dividend halves? He said, I'll be upset, but I'll have to get over it. When was that conversation? That was about a year before COVID, six months before COVID. Well, I'd say that's very prescient. I don't know if you're clever or lucky, but you got it right. No, definitely lucky. And I'm very <laughs> lucky that one of the banks wanted their money back. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it gave me a taste of that back-to-school feeling again. And you got that big decision right on the financing of a long-term business. Well, and if I go back yeah. to what I was saying to you about Sam Chippendale, you yeah. can do the best property deals in the world, but if you're not securely financed. But the market hasn't rewarded you for that in the slightest, has well, it? The market doesn't care, but listen, I'm the biggest shareholder in the company and I care. And it's where our interests are very much aligned with David Sanger, who's our biggest non-family shareholder, all the way through to my kids and my system, my nephews and nieces and, you know, Uncle Tom Cobbley. 
I don't always get it right. And I can't believe I've been as lucky as I have been this time. But I promise you, it wasn't foresight. We were very lucky that the bank were messing us around. And what I do remember from the global financial crisis, which we got through also very well at the time, because we sold... When things get too good to be true, it usually means that they are too good yes, to be true. Exactly. Yes. And I remember then we nearly got it right. Not quite. So we still had a bit of lasting pressure. I remember likening it when I was talking to someone that, you know, those days we've had some two or three weeks ago where it gets unbelievably hot and eventually it gets humid and eventually you know there's going to be a storm because it goes black. By and large, your time, when you're going to put all the garden furniture away, close the door and get in the house before it starts pissing down and thunder and lightning. And I would have said that we did all that in the global financial crisis, but we forgot to close the door when we went in the house. So the porch and the hall got a bit wet. Given the industry you're in, you did very well. Well, yeah, out of 10, you've probably given us a seven. But it was because our gearing was high and we had assets that we knew we'd done really well with, better than we'd have expected. Too good to be true. Can I just stop you there and just ask you, how does it feel today, given what you said about the, whatever it was, 2006, seven, how it was in 2018, 2019, how does it feel today? I mean, I'll tell you, you how you, I feel, and if this sounds very... You have to rush indoors. Well, if it sounds self-congratulatory or cocky, I apologise. But you remember the old Ready Breck advert where the kid goes out and, and he's got that orange glow around him in the cold? I feel a bit like that at the moment. <laughs> That's good. And I'm sorry if that sounds arrogant because it's no, not, not intended to be. But I think this time we've got our timing pretty right. Unfortunately, though, you know, before I get carried away with how good we are, we don't own enough good assets. In the investment game, you never buy enough of the good ones and you never buy enough of the bottom or sell enough of the top. It's all about direction of travel and the weighting you add to the decisions you're making on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Town centres have been losing retailers over successive years and leisure businesses have taken up, you know, some of these vacant properties. And, you know, Wilco's is the latest one to go. I had a look on your, the Merrion Centre at what's here and I don't think you've got a Wilco's. But we have. Have you? All right. We have. Okay. Well, fortunately, we're not going to lose significantly. They had a residue of a five-year lease. I think they paid their last rent that was due last quarter. So the lease literally runs out next month. The big but was we had agreed to let it to Poundland. We'd agreed a a re-letting to Poundland. They looked at a chunk of the um, Wilco stores and they decided not to proceed with the letting. Now, I don't know if that's because they didn't rate how much money they were taking in Merion, or they're now using their money to go and buy the bought a couple of dozen of the Wilco stores. So they might have used their resources up. They might just think Merion's not as good as they thought it was. So we will need to find another tenant because the shop in Merion closes next week. There was a wider question to that, because I've had a look on the Watson. There's a lot of eateries at the Merion Centre, and I'm just wondering how much more slack can we expect? There's only so much we can eat, surely. You're right. We've got our fair share of coffee shops. We've got our fair share of Pizza Express. We've got Pretz. We've got Starbucks. You know, so I completely get it. And the retail in Merion is challenging. It is challenging because it's that part of the market that is 
mass market volume retail. It's where people come and spend their money every day. We are very fortunate to rely heavily on those sort of shoppers because they don't spend a lot more when things are good and they don't spend a lot less when things are bad. But there is only a limit to so many of these sort of retailers. So we've got a Heron Foods in Merion. We've got a Home Bargains in Merion. We've got a Iceland. We've got Morrison's. You know, we've got a co-op supermarket. So, yeah, it's a challenge. And I knew that Wilco's, everybody had known Wilco's were in trouble. It's been the most worst-kept secret in the world. But I knew that with that would travel heartache and aggravation because there won't be the retailers there to take up those stores that are empty because too many have happened already. Yeah, I mean, there's not many people the size of British Home Stores or Debenhams now, is there, to come along no. and just take that up that area? I've been listening to you speak today, Edward. You know, it's been fascinating. And you talked about the family involvement and, um, you know, you, I think you've almost described yourself as like a, a temporary custodian of the business. And I'm just wondering, and this is perhaps something I can learn from how, how I look at my own investments. If we look at the Merrion Centre, I don't know if you'd call that the jewel in the crown of... Well, it's certainly a cash cow. Okay. I was reading that that was opened and your mother actually opened that in 1964. Perhaps that's a great example, but I'm just wondering what happens if you've got an asset that your father's developed and built up, you know, how do you avoid becoming emotionally involved and taking a, that battle between head and heart? How do you combat that? I've described Stylo and Town Centre as two extra children. You could probably describe as Marion as another child. What I would say, though, is that... It's a great cash cow, but it needs a lot of capital. And we are not wealthy enough necessarily to keep Merrion Centre forever because the capital it needs to spend on it will make it unaffordable for us to keep or it will give us massive indigestion. I wouldn't be surprised if Merrion gets sold in the next 10 years. In terms of managing the generational change, which we haven't really touched on, in town centre... It's almost an extension of that because my part of the family know Town Centre very well. My brother is a director here. He's got three boys and all three are very aware of what Town Centre is about. And I think all three of them have been schooled by my brother and they know what's you know, happening here well enough to make sensible decisions about their ownership going forward. I've got a sister who lives in Israel. She's got six kids. And what they know about the UK and, and UK property is very limited. And inevitably, as the family grows, it gets pulled and pushed in different directions. And they're probably unlikely to be shareholders in 20, 10 years' time because you know, my sister's not getting any younger. She's 60, well, I'm 63, so she's 67. And I doubt whether her kids will want to retain an investment in a business like this. So, you know, that old saying, clogs to clogs in three generations, it's not necessarily that the third generation are incompetent. It's just that if you look at the history of family businesses, few make it through three generations. And I'm the second generation, so the clock's ticking. And that's not a criticism or an estimate of my expectations from my kids or my brother's kids but it's just how it is it becomes more complex doesn't it my question here was when you retire will this company be run by by as if i hope so we took on a lady as a nominally a property director 
called Linda Schiller. I don't know if that name means anything to you. But it was a big mistake, not because she wasn't competent. She was very competent. But what I didn't realize when I appointed her was that she was expecting to become chief executive. And I remember having, not long after she arrived, quite a difficult conversation with her that if there is to be a non-ZIF chief executive of this company, it's because we've chosen that as if isn't going to do the job, not because she's going to get it. She's now chief executive of Harworth Estates. And she's very good, very talented. She's a delightful lady, but her expectations of us were different. And, you know, she wasn't going to go and put her family silver on the line like we do every day. She wanted a decent salary and a bit of a share option scheme to go with it and wanted to make some money quite quickly. I'm in the place where I've been given a terrific start in life, tremendous opportunity that, you know, 99.5% of the people in the world wouldn't even dream of. But I want to make sure that I look after it and pass it on in, in a condition better than it was than I inherited. And if I don't, I failed. And if, God forbid, I lose control of it, either through foolishness, mistimed transactions, no one will thank me. Edward, you've given us a fantastic overview of the challenges and dilemmas and complexities involved in running a family business that was frankly revelation to me in terms of not really having thought it through as clearly and deeply as you've just illustrated it there. I thank you so much for doing that. If you had the opportunity to go back to your younger self, which you described brilliantly for us today, what advice would you give? I think make decisions from a position of knowledge. So I had no idea the responsibility of running a family business. My father made it so easy. He was very good at it. That's the first thing. He made a lot of money. That also helped. But he was very good at it. And he was quite happy to take on that mantle. And he never exhausted of it. He ran out of good health quite young. He was 77 when he died. And he was in the office 10 days before he passed away. And he was finished. You know, at 77, he was absolutely done in. I don't work as hard as my father did. And I should be embarrassed about that. But I'm not that embarrassed. When my son was poorly, my youngest son, Jacob, he was diagnosed at age 14 with leukemia. And it was an incredibly stressful part-time in mine and my wife's life. But it made me realize maybe there are other things that are more important. And I'll go back to my 99.5% thing. I was a very wealthy guy, I guess, by most people's standards. I seem to know a lot of people who are a lot wealthier than me. They make me feel <laughs> not so fortunate. But money is the last thing that's important. The most important thing is health. The second most thing is fulfillment and enjoyment from what you do. And I've been very blessed from the start all the way through to today to work with some lovely people who I don't socialize with them, but they are friends and they are trusted counselors of mine. And um, they put up with my nonsense on bad days. And I hope I reward them with sufficient fun on the good days to make it worthwhile. And I think all those things, you can't expect a 25-year-old to understand. But if I did understand it, it's that old, you know, old head on young shoulders, you know, thing. If you just understood more at the time, you could use your time so much better. That's uh, very powerful. And thank you for sharing that with us. 
No, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for being interested because no. there aren't many that are, as I said at the beginning. And if anything I've said comes over as, you know, cocky and arrogant, I apologise because that's Not the last all. thing I hope I am. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.